0: Welcome to Onscript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Quick announcement, if you have a question that you'd like to submit for our listener Q&A that we're going to do at some point in the near future, please submit it to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com. So that's onscriptpodcast at gmail.com for an upcoming listener Q&A on anything related to the history, culture, archaeology, geography of the Bible. And uh, hopefully we'll try to address your questions. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode.
0: Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. We are here with another exciting podcast today. I am Kyle Keimer, and I am joined by my co-host, Chris McKinney. Chris, how are you doing today? Kyle, I'm doing really well. How are you? I, I couldn't be any better. I'm pretty excited about today. Today we have Professor Ken Dark on to talk about his work at Nazareth. Now, Ken is a, a professor, visiting professor at King's College London, and he's a essentially the chair there. So uh, he's been also at the University of Reading, and he is a specialist in kind of first century AD or first millennium AD uh, uh, history, early Christianity, urbanism, late antiquity. Uh, he's got a, a broad range of interests, but also uh, methodology and theory and archaeology. So he has this nice, nice background. And he has been doing some work at Nazareth uh, since 2000, uh, early 2000s. I forget the exact year, 2006 maybe, uh, where he's done some survey work and also worked with some of the previous excavations there. And so it's really exciting to have him on today to talk about his work. Ken, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, well, let's get it. let's kick things off, and could you tell us a little about you so you're the kind of founding director of the Nazareth Archaeological Project. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the project is and how it how it started?
2: It originated
0: with um, my desire to trace
2: the uh, emergence of a Christian pilgrimage site. Of late antiquity, of the um, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries, um, in an area where we could trace that uh, development from its late Roman background uh, against a landscape that wasn't Christian, or didn't seem to be Christian in the in the late Roman period, and see how it emerged. Um, as a a place that Christians went to and that perhaps there was some kind of imperial um, Roman uh, investment in. And so I was looking around in the Middle East, in the Eastern Mediterranean, for a place to um, centre this project. And I considered sites in Syria. Egypt, Greece, and so forth. But the opportunity came up to work at Nazareth in Israel. And so, um, of course, I jumped at that, knowing that so little archaeological work had taken place on Nazareth. Even in recent years, there had been nothing really more than responsive rescue archaeology or if you like salvage salvage archaeology done on nazareth and so we knew very very little about even the core settlement of nazareth in the roman period in late antiquity but also we knew almost nothing at all about the surrounding landscape did The emergence of this Christian pilgrimage center that we know about from texts make people richer, make people poorer, make people become Christians, make people react against Christianity. We didn't know. And it was possible to use modern archaeological methods to investigate those sort of questions. And that's what we did.
0: So from the very beginning, then it sounded like you had uh, survey plans in mind, as opposed to necessarily strictly excavating. Which in Nazareth is a is a tricky thing because obviously it's a living city today, and the excavations that are taking place there are, are almost entirely salvage excavations. That's
2: that's true. The uh, the excavations taking place in in Nazareth, um, such as they were, um, in the. Um, early twenty-first century, I began work in Nazareth in two thousand and four. Um, were entirely salvage excavations, what in in the UK we call rescue excavations, being um, conducted by the Israel Antiquities Authority, the IAA. Uh, modern modern archaeology is so much more than excavation and these 21st century techniques of survey both ground survey and things like satellite imaging aerial photography um these had not been really applied at all to the landscape surrounding nazareth and um, again this was part of what we were aiming to do so i took out a British team out to Nazareth, Um, this was not a multinational project, I've directed many of those but uh, this particular one wasn't, and we applied all the um, current archaeological techniques for surveying the landscape to the landscape between Nazareth, modern Nazareth that is. And uh, the Roman town of Sepphoris, which is about five miles to the north. And that landscape had um, been, of course, known about by archaeologists, biblical scholars, but never studied in a modern archaeological way, really at all. There'd been a little bit of survey um, by people working on Seferis up until the point we we began our work but very very little and um, hardly any of that was actually published and so with the IAA's permission with a licence from the Israeli government we were able to um, conduct a survey throughout the valley which separates these these two important places, um, Sepphoris and Nazareth. And that area is the hinterland of both of these places as settlements. In terms of Nazareth's agricultural land, the Nazareth Ridge, which is uh, essentially a steep uh, cliff immediately sa- south of um, Modern Nazareth, that effectively cuts off the settlement at Nazareth to its uh, southern um, area of landscape. It, it makes it almost impossible to imagine that the farms and fields appertaining to ancient Nazareth were to its south. They effectively had to be between Nazareth itself and Sepphoris, So that's the area we were interested in. And intensively surveying that area, we produced um, the surprising result of, whereas it had been um, considered, seemed um, archaeologically very, very sparsely settled. Um, More than 20 undiscovered Roman settlements, Roman period settlements, um, emerged from this work as really quite a dense pattern in the land between Sepphoris and Nazareth. So that was the first surprise of many undertaking this archaeological project.
0: Yeah, you know, and these results. I'm just going to plug your one of your volumes right now. You can, for the listeners out there, um, Professor Dark has two volumes out already on the results of the project we're talking about today that that we can recommend to you, and it has another volume coming out um, that we'll we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, these results are in a the book titled "Roman Period and Byzantine Nazareth and Its hinterland," published by by Rutledge, and. You know just to before we come back to the material, I, I have to say, I I can really appreciate not only you're already touching on things we love to talk about, which such as the topography and an understanding of how geography really is elemental in in considering historic processes. Not necessarily determinative, but it, it's 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 always a part of it. But you bring in throughout your volume and throughout framing your entire project, good and clear methodology informed too with archeological, uh, theory, which is something that we definitely need more of in the field and which Chris and I, I think really, uh, quite appreciate. So that's just a kudos to you for this, for the, the structuring of the project, um, and, you know, leading up to the survey and everything that it was, that it was done. Now I, Chris, I would, you must say something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I would just add to, um, the the background for such an amazing project and how kind of odd it is that something at nazareth to this scale and level um hadn't been done before or at least uh this scope and so it's wonderful to for you guys to to push ahead here and i've always been surprised as well at how little even the sea of galilee has been, uh, surveyed to this level. Like if you, I always like to point out to my students, if you look at the Israel antiquities authority survey map, uh, there's, there's one big missing hole, uh, and an area that we should know a lot about, which is the area of the sea of Galilee. And, and so it's, it's great to see the intensive survey that you guys have done in this very important early Christian area. And my question then is, in terms of these settlements you mentioned that they're that they're roman uh, settlements between Sepphoris and nazareth what seems to be the earliest uh movement in that direction is it early roman period is hasmonean um what what seems to be like the the first of this settlement wave in that vicinity first
2: yes it's an astonishing um astonishing fact that no one had done this sort of thing in the landscape north of Nazareth and indeed um around the Sea of Galilee as um you probably both know I followed up work I'd been doing at Nazareth by actually doing the same thing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and um that's but that's another story to, to that which we're telling this evening um well it's this evening for me um and to actually answer your question, um, if I sounded um, but I was getting on to a completely different one. Um, to answer the question, the earliest stuff is late Hellenistic. It's that very much the same as we get from the center of Nazareth after the break in the occupation sequence in um in central Nazareth, which breaks. For centuries, apparently, this this might be a lack of um a lack of archaeological work, and then resumes in the late Hellenistic period. I I've heard people say um, oh, there's no, there's no late Hellenistic and um first early first century material in Nazareth, but when you've stood there um holding it at Holding the pottery and so forth, actually in your hands, um, you find that very hard to believe.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I think, you know, this is why one reason your work is so important is because it it basically takes some of the fringe ideas that are out there that either Nazareth wasn't even occupied in the days of Jesus, or it was it should be equated with a nearby site called Jaffa, and it says no, those those ideas really don't stand the scrutiny of the evidence that is available. And in fact, whether we're looking at textual sources, even if they're limited or have holes in them, all agree that the Nazareth of today is, you know, the Nazareth of the New Testament text. And the material cultures there as well. There's no reason to create a new solution when none is necessary.
2: Absolutely not. Uh, so far as my work has been concerned we have demonstrated absolutely that nazareth was there at the time jesus is said by the gospels to have lived there um, it is unthinkable that there isn't a nazareth of history so so to speak in the early first century and my latest my latest book you've talked about two of mine. Um, My latest book on on Nazareth, Archaeology of Jesus' Nazareth, um, is really focused on that early first century settlement, whereas the others uh, considered a much wider book, a wider time span, this new book is really just about the Nazareth Jesus would have known um, in the early first century in terms of living there so what is surprising is how also is how similar the archaeology that we now have from Nazareth is to the early first century archaeology at Yafia um, which is meant to be a town it's mentioned in Josephus but if you put the list of archaeological features from Nazareth in the early first century and of first century overall and those known from that period at Euphia next to each other they are basically identical and this is um of course really interesting because we we don't know how large Nazareth was um we have really Gone away from the idea that the ring of rock-cut tombs of Roman period date, it's true, and um, surrounding central Nazareth necessarily delimit the early first century or from even the, the mid-first century settlement. Because in at least two cases, at the Sisters of Nazareth site and at Church of the Annunciation site, and possibly elsewhere. They seem to be in previously occupied areas, as if the settlement has contracted, or at least the tombs of, of the cemetery area has encroached. And these tombs are of types that we don't really see in Galilee before the mid-first century anyway. So. Anybody who wants to use them to delimit the exact area of the early to mid-1st century settlement is um, on a hiding to nothing, really, because they're seemingly all later than that. And as I say, in a couple of cases, at least, they do seem to be dug into what What had been settlement areas, of course, in um, Jewish religious law, you can't have settlement, except under exceptional circumstances. You can't have settlement on a tomb, but there's nothing to say, and I've checked this out with people much more expert in in um, Second Temple Judaism than I would claim to be. You can't, but you can have. A tomb dug into a disused settlement area, and so this is what we seem to see at Nazareth, and um, it's got important implications for the size and the character of Nazareth. We often read in in biblical archaeology books, um, "Oh, Nazareth was a hamlet, a tiny, tiny settlement of a few farms." Well. We, do, we don't know this we absolutely don't have the evidence for that and what we do have is that it's first century archaeology such as we know it which is very very incomplete still does seem to tally up with this settlement which is always assumed to be much larger at yefya so that's um that's very interesting. But your fear, you're quite right, is not not biblical Nazareth. And biblical Nazareth is pretty much certainly the settlement in the middle of uh, modern Nazareth.
0: Well, and I like what you've been saying, too, because I think it's a great example of you – know, it's a great reminder, shall we say, to scholars out there, archaeologists, that you know, we have the archaeological data. We can say a lot with it, but we, we can't say everything. And you really have to be attuned and precise to what it's showing you so that you're not making claims that aren't supportable. So you can talk about from a kind of stratigraphic sequence that you've got domestic structures of some sort that clearly precede these tombs in Nazareth, which are typologically pretty well dated by Judean parallels to the mid to late first century which means then obviously the buildings that those are kind of cut into or kind of reutilizing are earlier it gives you you know that that strict uh stratigraphic sequence but as you're saying you can't necessarily say the nature of the site because you, we don't have enough evidence to talk about that and so it's a really good lesson for us to remember that yes there's interpretation call uh interpretation necessary when it comes to the archaeological record but let's not get too fanciful with it
2: absolutely and also um the tombs are not just dated from judean examples um a very important first century and later um cemetery of these rock tombs it has been very well excavated by the iaa the israel antiquities authority um not that far from nazareth um at a place called migdal and there you've got first century second century and later roman tombs and even byzantine tombs uh, which are very typologically distinct and but there you've got artifacts and so forth associated with them so um it's not just a matter of going down um to judea to um Get parallels. You don't have to look very far, and of course, there are parallels to the Nazareth tombs in um, the Yafia tombs, and these are places very, very close to Nazareth. So, um, we we have really a lot of evidence for this sort of tomb typology. But also, of course, we must remember that these rock cut tombs. have their own story to tell. And what they seem to be telling us is that archaeologically, regardless of texts, archaeologically, there was a population in later first century and second century Nazareth, which was building tombs in a in a quite Judean style, but with apparent signs, archaeological indications of wealth and you know this as well as i do there is a a reference to one of the priestly families of um, post post revolt um israel um coming to live in nazareth so um maybe it's obviously not certain but maybe these tombs And we do seem to have rather a lot of them in Nazareth um, compared to what we would expect. Um, These these tombs might be the archaeological reflex of that priestly family or at least other Judean refugees from the aftermath of the first revolt. So we can see not just Jesus'. But we can see an archaeology of what happens to Roman Nazareth, Roman period Nazareth, after the mid-first century. And that's carried right the way through to the late Roman period um, at the Church of the Annunciation site, which is um, across the road, literally, of modern Nazareth to the place that I've um, done most of my work at. In the center, on which is a a site called the Sisters of Nazareth site.
1: Could could I ask a question um, related to this? This is so fascinating. Um, In in Eusebius, the Ecclesiastical History, you have a couple references to Jude, uh, the brother of Jesus by the flesh. uh, Eusebius tells us that he also seems to refer to like the family of the Savior, and even gives a couple of names. You mentioned, you know, a priestly family perhaps being related to these tombs, and I know this is a little bit later, perhaps into the second century AD. But have you thought of that, and and possibly seeing it as historical or not historical, Um, and just even the continued presence of not only maybe Jesus followers in the vicinity, but even the tradition that the family stuck around? Has that factored into this discussion and in your research at all? It's not really come into
2: my archaeological research but it it obviously is something that i thought about and um my thoughts are this that there's absolutely no reason why um a continuing presence from the wider family of jesus um that is to say descendants of um mary and Joseph and or their broader family couldn't have existed in um, later 1st, 2nd century uh, and even later Nazareth. And, you know, in a way, it would be surprising if this didn't happen, if Mary and Joseph were of the sort of social class or social group that we usually associate them with. So those sort of people were not really highly mobile in most rural communities in the Roman Empire, at least not whole families, not whole extended families. So we would, I think, by default, expect a continuing presence of that broader family. Of course, this doesn't mean to say that utter nonsense about descendants of Jesus directly um, would could have existed in, in Nazareth or anywhere else for that matter. Um, but the broader family really, I think, would be expected. We would have to um have evidence that they weren't present in. In the Nazareth area, so those kind of um, hints in later sources, yes, they might be made up, but it there's no reason why they should be at first sight um, discredited or implausible, Um, and even if those references don't in texts don't refer to the broader family, the wider family, if you like, of Jesus being still present in the Nazareth area in later centuries. Well, that is only the existence of that family in a kind of ongoing capacity, is only what I think we would expect. So that's my that's my thought on that one.
1: Yeah, that that absolutely makes sense and, and it at least gives you. Know a great title for book number four, the the Nazareth Code. <laughs> yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I don't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> just just kidding. Uh, but I I would be remiss not to ask. Um, so, if we can think of this continuation and seeing it in the sources and seeing it as we can't know for certain, but but possible. And you mentioned that the first settlement wave is in the late Hellenistic period. Do you have any thoughts cuz we've had um we've had other uh, talks on here about the middle Hasman, the middle Maccabees you know the middle hasmoneans and then moving into the area of Galilee you have talked about it archeologically do you have any ideas of the impetus for uh Jewish settlement in the area of Nazareth and Yefea uh, that seems to start at this reason like what do you do you see any uh possible background for why they would have come there in this period well, I think there's quite good evidence for settlers from
2: the south of the country moving in to um, Lower Galilee as a whole and including the Nazareth area. But why they did so, other than that the area is um, agriculturally rich, I mean, compared to many parts of um, southern Israel, it's, it's a positive agricultural paradise and um, you can grow multitude of types of crops there there's pretty high rainfall for anywhere in the middle east i mean people always tell me that the rainfall in nazareth they averaged over the year is the same as the rainfall in london so um, as a londoner i know that's pretty pretty much um, so so even if that's approximately true it, it would suggest that there was the rain. There's certainly the soils. Um, the soils in in the Nazareth area are particularly rich in terms of um, their agricultural potential. There are quite a lot of springs. It's always always puzzled me where in these kind of biblical geography books and biblical archaeology books you read, people say. There's only one well in Nazareth, as if that's a fact. There isn't. Um, There are several wells in Nazareth. They were well known in uh, previous centuries. Um, And on the hills around Nazareth, there's a huge number of small, yes, very small, often, springs. But the sort of spring that could support an individual farm. And... They did. These 20 plus um, Roman period farms are getting their water from somewhere. And that's not all seasonal and rainfall capture, though rainfall capture um, is part of it, I, I should think. And also, we have quite a lot of historical texts from later centuries saying how agriculturally fruitful the Nazareth area was Um, right the way through from the Byzantine period right up to the Ottoman period. People keep saying when they visit the the Nazareth area, oh, you know, it's wonderfully fruitful in terms of agricultural products. Better than Egypt, one Byzantine writer says. Um, And so, you know, an incentive for people to, who are farmers down in what's today the south of Israel um, to move into Lower Galilee and the Nazareth area as part of that, I think has to be the agricultural potential, the agricultural possibilities of farming there. Why they why they up sticks and... Um, went north to do that i don't know i haven't got any um well formulated ideas on at the moment
0: well let me switch tacks here for a second and kind of zoom out for a moment and then um and then focus a bit on some of the specific work you you did in nazareth uh, before we come back to some more of the the survey results so, kind of before your work, there were excavations at the Church of the Annunciation, kind of compound, a couple of different excavations within that compound, and some salvage work. And there were little known excavations across the street in the uh, the Sisters of Nazareth convent as well. And we now also have results from the International um, Center for Mary, uh, if I remember the name correctly, which is also right American
2: there. Marian Center.
0: Yeah the um, yeah, so, IMC site it's it's convenient to call
2: it
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah so tell us a little bit about because I know in your in the two volumes um your kind of two initial volumes you both reinterpret and kind of work back through um the Franciscan excavations in the Annunciation uh, area and you go through and you present the reinterpretation of the Sisters of Nazareth convent um can you tell us a little bit about that you know that project in particular, that that component of the project, and how, in working back through both of the the material from both these sites, it led to a kind of transformed understanding of of Nazareth.
2: The Annunciation site had been excavated over the better part of a century, and that excavation program had culminated in massive rescue or salvage excavations when the modern cathedral-sized Church of the Annunciation was built in the 1960s uh, principally. That series of excavations had revealed a whole range of rock-cut features uh, lying in what the excavators, particularly Bellamino Bugatti in the 1960s, considered to be Um, The Roman or particularly early Roman phase of settlement at the Church of the Annunciation, there was much earlier settlement, but there was this very distinct phase of rock cut features, artificial caves, wine presses, olive presses, this kind of thing, forming the early Roman period um, phase at the site. So what I did with um, the Church of the Annunciation, including that phase, was um, reanalyze the stratigraphical and artifactual evidence from the site. And that produces a very interesting result that the early Roman um, phase uh, at the Church of the Annunciation site really can be broken down into a series of sub-phases, of which there are three main ones, including features which were reused um, for hiding places of the type strongly associated with the First Revolt. So in the Nazareth area, that would suggest that there were existing Agricultural rock cut spaces, um, storage pits, and um, artificial caves that were remodeled in 68, 69, which is when the first revolt is um, active in that that area, um, as refuge places for the local population. But obviously, in order to remodel something, which is an agricultural feature, part of the farming regime in 68 or 69, it has to have been there already and probably have been used for some time before that. And yet those features that are reused, those pits and artificial caves and so forth, that are reused at that time, Aren't the earliest, early Roman um, phase or subphase on the Church of the Annunciation site? So we have real time depth injected into that um, first century phase. We have um, features which can be assigned to the first revolt. We can have features that precede that, and features that. Um, proceed those and so for the first time we see real sequence within the first century at the um at the um church of the annunciation side, and we have the artifacts to go with that admittedly the excavations um, by bagatti et cetera are really lacking in detail at least in published detail and were conducted what, in what has to be said, it ha, what it has to be said was a, a manner which was really pretty much obsolete when they were um, actually undertaken. They were very old-fashioned excavations um, for their time, but nonetheless are well, published in sufficient detail and were done in sufficient detail that these stratigraphical and artifactual reinterpretations are possible. Going on from that early Roman phase, we can see later Roman features, particularly a series of um, large cisterns. And after those, we have a very, very elaborate building, quite small, which seems to be a fourth century church. Extremely elaborately um, decorated, um, standing right outside the um, cave that was later venerated as the Cave of the Annunciation, where um, Mary uh, received the message from the angel that she was going to have Jesus. Now, that fourth century church was. Quite possibly, the church that textual sources, well, a textual source, re- refers to as being um, constructed at the request or at the um, order of a, um, a late Roman official, himself called Joseph, and being therefore something really quite intrusive on the settlement. It. In archaeological terms, the fourth century building was um, later disused, and the area outside the Church of the Annunciation um, cave, venerated as the um, Cave of the Annunciation, um, was paved over. Nobody seems to have noticed this paving phase before perhaps they considered a load of cobbling um too insignificant too trivial but, but that paving that cobbling is associated with large numbers of lamp shards or lamp shirts um and these lamp are indicating i think some kind of ritual activity involving lamps immediately outside uh, the cave of the Annunciation. So some probably some kind of Christian um, veneration. And that then then ceases when another elaborate church, this time 5th century in date, is built, the forerunner of today's church of the Annunciation. And that uh, building is again, obviously, the the subject of extensive external patronage it's got amazing mosaics which are in some rooms replaced by other mosaics and so and so that's the um the roman and byzantine sequence at the church of the annunciation reinterpreted um but based on data recorded and Ultimately published by the Franciscan excavators. Now, the church of the um, uh, the convent of the Sisters of Nazareth is a very different matter indeed. There, it was the nuns of the order led by their astounding um, convent superior, um, the head nun, Mare Giraud, Mother Giraud, in the 1880s onwards, that excavated their own convent site and found, if anything, a more complex sequence than at the Church of the Annunciation. Indeed, Mère Giraud, as a a woman who instigated the excavation programme, led the excavations, recorded them, in her case, to what was the state-of-the-art, really, level of archaeological recording in the 1880s, and then used as her team a largely female team of nuns in doing this, directing and setting up pretty much the first excavation organised and directed by a woman, at least in the Middle East. And I haven't yet actually checked if there's anything earlier globally. Um, certainly, I know in British archaeology, um, Western Roman archaeology, we do not have women setting up and directing excavations, let alone having all-female excavation teams in the 1880s. So so that's, that is... A global first, for the, uh, potentially, for the um, Sisters of Nazareth, and Marie Chirot ought to be in all our histories of archaeology as um, an absolute pioneer of women in archaeology. However, in terms of what this excavation tells us about um, Roman period and Byzantine Nazareth, <laughs> it... It's a, a, a absolutely fascinating site. The sequence starts with a building which is cut back into the rock. It has all the features we associate with a domestic building of the early Roman period, but they're better preserved at this site because they were cut back into a hillside. As, limestone hillside that building must have collapsed within the first century because it was used for quarrying you know the there was quarrying activity on the site cutting into that building before that quarrying activity was in turn cut into by um, one of these rock cut tombs a rock cut tomb which has specific formal features, specific attributes, which make a date after about AD 100 very unlikely. So if the tomb was um, at latest 100, cutting into quarrying, cutting into the the building that was um, carved into the rocky hillside, then this whole sequence, as there is pottery which um, we know from elsewhere in Galilee and generally, um, wasn't manufactured before the turn of the era, before in Nazareth terms the start of the Roman period at the start of the the first century. Um, we we can see that this whole sequence must go within the first century again that's by by no means the end of the story the sequence then after the tomb there are there are other tombs on the side there, the sequence then has it seems a hiatus maybe um occupational a uh, use or something like that continued elsewhere on the site we don't know but in the actual excavation area there's a hiatus until we get a fourth century um, and later cave church Christian cave church um carved into the same Rocky hillside adjacent to where um, these features that I've just been mentioning um, were located that, Cave church is extremely well preserved. Um, ritual um, or liturgical features in its apse include a series of um, water tanks, where you can see that water has been um, led into these tanks from above, from a cistern above, and then drained out of them. But Access has been made to that water by a glass spout, which presumably originally had a stopper, um, set into the side of the tanks. And this up in the apse of the cave church. It's very hard to believe that this um, processing of water in um, the apse of the church uh, wasn't for itself, for the liturgical purposes. And it does, I have to say, recall me um, reference to Christians in Nazareth, um, uh, later Christians in Nazareth, getting white sediment or white water. It's obviously the um, limestone, white limestone um, particles in the water um, and using that. Um, For liturgical purposes. So that's the cave church. But the cave church becomes part of the crypt of a large, uh, very elaborately decorated again, um, and mosaic decorated again, um, surface level church built in probably the fifth century and exhibiting all the characteristics of 5th and 6th century um, major Byzantine churches. And at that period, not only is the cave church elaborately decorated with mosaics, so too are the remains, it seems, of the house. At least many mosaic cubes um, from wall mosaics were found when the nuns excavated it, none in situ, I'm sorry to say, um, but the wall coverings had actually completely gone. But that um house or building seems to have been um venerated or at least treated in a special way in the crypt of the large fifth and sixth century church, and um. Why is a very important question for understanding the Sisters of Nazareth side. What seems to be the case is that the site is that mentioned in a written text called De Locis Sanctis, um, concerning the holy places, about the holy places, which was written in the late 7th century Nazareth ceased to be a Byzantine um, place, by then the Arab conquest had happened, but Christian pilgrimage still went on and a pilgrim, a Western pilgrim, describes two churches in the center of Nazareth in, in, the, um, page, pages of, um, in the pages of the text known as De Loki Sanctis. This um, this church is, without doubt, a very important one. The other church described in De Loki Sanctis is the Church of the Annunciation. This church seems to be quite grand in De Loki Sanctis, but it's characterised by having a house. Well, we, we have the, the rock heart building. Between two tombs in its crypt. Well, we have two rock cut tombs which were um, visible in the um, Byzantine period and uh, probably later in the crypt of that church, and that our rock cut building lies between them. The exciting thing, and that has caused a great amount of excitement about the site is that De Loki Sanctis says that the reason that house, um reason the church was there was the house was there, because that was the house that
0: Jesus was brought up in this has been amazing uh professor dark thank you so much for sharing about your project at nazareth and work we could go on and on and on i think but i think we're going to stop the the episode right now and it would be great to have you on again to talk even more about the development we have in nazareth and some of the the really interesting results particularly the transition of the the roman kind of site into the byzantine site is one of real fascination and the the kind of uh role it plays in pilgrimage but we just want to thank you again chris and i for for coming on and um, uh, biblical world listeners thank you for listening and until next time keep on digging you've been listening to OnScript's biblical world podcast if you enjoy this show please show your support by giving us a rating on itunes or wherever you listen you can support the show by visiting onscript.study/ slash donate until next time keep digging